today, uh, well, actually, I, we've been studying, a, had a study going of the case for creation, and I hope that's been a good study. I did say we were going to finish that up today, but uh, the, the lesson for today was going to be about um, difficulties with scientists, difficulties with evolutionary scientists. And when I was getting into the study a little bit, I thought, you know, this, this is really, we've already talked about it a lot. It, it basically says, you know, that much of what's taught today evolutionary-wise, scientists don't necessarily agree with everything, but they, you know, peer pressure, uh, fear of losing a job, that kind of thing ha all comes into play there. Very political thing, right? And so that's why you hear a lot of things you do uh, in our schools. Didn't feel like that was a full day's worth of uh, study, so thought we'd end that and move on. So I hope you uh, enjoyed that study and were able to take some things away from that that will help you uh, in your, in your spiritual walk and in, in your defense of your faith, especially around those in the world who try to tell you things that we know are not true. So today, we're going to go ahead and begin our study of the letter to the Colossians, uh, Paul's letter. Uh, hopefully this will be a very good study. haven't had a study of Colossians in a while. It's a very short letter, but there's a whole lot of stuff in there, a whole lot of stuff in there that we can consider, right? <clears throat> Several questions that we're going to look at as we go through it. And you can see those in your outline if you picked one up. One is, uh, do heavenly bodies have any influence on our lives? Uh, millions of people consult what? Horoscopes, look to the stars, look to astrologists for their future. Things are uncertain, right? We don't know what's gonna happen in the future. We look, people look to all kinds of things, right? To figure that out. So you would say, yeah, there are a lot of people that look at the occult, look at heavenly bodies, look at uh, horoscopes to find out how their day is going to go, what's their future going to be like. And there's a couple thousand newspapers in the U.S., right, that print these things, right? The, the horoscope, uh, what, are, what, what is the future? I mean, you go to a Chinese place and you get a fortune cookie, right? And it says, you know, you are loved or something like that. Well, of course, you know, I'm loved. I hope I am. You know, I mean, but you get that kind of thing all over the place, right? And we also can ask the question, is there a relationship between how we eat and how we live spiritually? You know, what, what kind of silly question is that? Well, people look at that. Did you know that? And maybe you do. Maybe you've wondered, does my diet have anything to do with the way I live or the way my spiritual life goes? And believe it or not, these are questions that were going on at the time of Paul's letter. Also, does God speak to us immediately in our minds or only through his word? And we mean by his word, the Bible, right? Is there, is there special revelation that we receive? Is there special visions or things that we receive? You watch TV, you know, you hear people say that, right? I, God spoke to me last night. Well, okay, how did he speak to you? Well, he, I was dreaming, I dreamed something, or he told me this or that, you know? Is that relevant? Is that a good question to ask? Do people ask that question today? Of course they do. Well, guess what? They were asking this question back at the time of the Colossian letter as well. And do the Eastern religions have something to offer us, or offer those who are Christians? Do we, or should we, can we look at pagan religions and glean something from that for ourselves? Is there something else out there that we should be looking into? Are Eastern religions still with us today? 
Well, of course they are. There's, you know, Buddhism, uh, Islam, all the, all the Eastern religions you can think of, there are bunches of them. Uh, we don't necessarily see that in the U.S. so much, although we see it more and more, right? As more immigrants come in, migration from other countries comes in. But do these questions, do these things actually affect us in our Christian lives today? These are questions that sound very um, wild, sound very, I guess you could say, contemporary, right? But these were questions that were being asked at the time of the Colossian letter. They're very issues that Paul has to deal with in his epistle to the Colossians. So, we're going to look at this letter. It was written around 60 AD, most likely. Most scholars would agree with that. It was a time of tumult in the, in the kingdom of Rome, right? You had a lot of stuff going on. Colossae, very small town and what today would be considered southwestern Turkey. At that time, it was Asia Minor. It's an ancient city. doesn't exist anymore, obviously. Uh, it's, there's a few ruins there you might find. But at the time of Paul's letter, it was probably a pretty small town. It had probably been a very large town at one time, a uh, very prominent place, and it was near the towns of Hierapolis and Laodicea. And, of course, we read about Laodicea where? In Revelation, right? one of the seven churches, right? So it's a prominent area, prominent area that Paul took missionary trips to and established some churches, but may not have established the church in Colossae. We'll talk about that in a minute. Colossae was distinct because it was near Heropolis and Laodicea, which were pro prominent places. Heropolis was a place known for uh, health or a spa-like place. People would go there relax, you know, a vacation kind of type place you might think of. And then Laodicea was more of a commercial center, more of a political center you might think of, uh, where commerce occurred and things like that. So Colossae was more of a small town. You might think of, you know, where your grandparents, when they were farmers, lived, you know, not so much around here, but, you know, maybe some of you guys came from a farm. You might think of a small town that you lived in. That was more like what it would have been like. At the time of the letter, it was a pagan city. Uh, had an intermingling of Jews, Jewish Gnostics, you might say, and we'll talk about that eventually a little bit. And there were probably around, in 62 B.C., it's, uh, in, in your outline it says there were probably around 11,000 Jewish freedmen in the, in the area, uh, freedmen in the Tri-City area. I know Jim Freeman's not here today, he is watching, but he was there. That's where he got his name, right, for Jim Freeman? He was there, I, what I heard, he told me. But, uh, yeah, they had a lot of different types, different groups of people living there. Jews, Gentiles, of all different religious backgrounds, perhaps. Uh, there were some cult-like things going on, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So this can help us understand some of the problems that might have crept up in the church there in Colossae. Now, Paul's writing these letters to these churches. For the most part, he has to write a letter because of what? Uh, there's a problem going on, right? That's why he has to write a letter to these churches. Something's happening, and he's got to correct it. He's got to say, look, guys, this is not where you were. If you look at Corinthians, especially 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church had all kinds of problems, right? Now, they're over in Greece, but they're not far from the Asia Minor churches. All these churches came from so many different backgrounds, and they have so many different faiths that they come from. They're now converted to the true faith, the one faith, but there's still things creeping in, right? Still things 
affecting the way they believe. Kind of like today, right? Kind of like we have in Christianity today. Things that creep in. Things that other religions or pagans or beliefs that people hold bring in to what? The truth and try to kind of evade the truth or, or bring us away from the truth, right? Well, that was going on in Colossae as well. We're not sure how the church in Colossae was established. If you'll open your Bibles to the letter of Colossians, we'll look at a few verses there and try to see what we can glean from that, especially around the establishment of the church there. Turn to chapter 2, and we'll read the first verse there of Colossians. Paul says, For I want to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attending to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God. So from this verse, we can kind of glean that Paul may have never, may have never met the brethren at Colossae. Probably did not establish the church there. We think, well, these letters he writes, he had to have had a personal relationship with these folks, right? He's writing them. Well, perhaps not so much at Colossae. Oh, he had a relationship. He was well known, right? They would have known who Paul was. They had heard about him. Others had heard about him, especially in the region of Asia Minor where he had traveled, where he had taken his trips and missionary trips through to establish churches. But perhaps in the small town of Colossae, he had not actually gone and established a church. Perhaps it had been established by a small group of folks that had perhaps heard him preach or been in other churches. Perhaps he had not known them in person. Turn back to chapter 1 there, and let's read verse uh, 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which was laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of gospel, which has come to you as it is also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth, as you learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So perhaps, and this is the first time we see the name Epaphras, perhaps it was established through the work of Epaphras. He had perhaps known of the truth by visiting Laodicea, Heropolis, some other cities. Perhaps he, he was able to understand and obey the gospel and had taken that back to Colossae and helped to establish a church there. We don't know that for sure, but he does mention his name as being very prominent, right? From what Paul says there in chapter 1, perhaps it was Epaphras who started the church. He evidently had some contact with those in Heropolis and Laodicea as well. We'll, re we'll see that too. So there was a small region there, a group of folks that had traveled around to those towns probably and had heard the gospel one way or another. Uh, Paul had contact with these folks. He had, been to, he had probably been to Heropolis, Laodicea and helped establish some churches in those regions. Uh, some of the members there, we have Epaphras, obviously, who's the founder. And then let's turn over to chapter 4 there and look at a few other folks that are mentioned, particularly in verse uh, 12. It talks about Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayer, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you, and those who are in Laodicea and those in Heropolis, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. 
So we have Epaphras, we have uh, others that Paul mentions that they know, that Epaphras knows, talking about Epaphras being fervent in prayer for others and the great zeal they ha he has for the congregation there. Now, I want to mention another letter we have in the New Testament that's kind of related to this. If you turn over to the letter of Philemon, the short little letter that we kind of neglect. I don't, I've never, I haven't heard a lot of study on the letter of Philemon, I guess because there's not a whole lot to study, right? There's just a few verses there. But they relate to Colossae. And let's go over there and just look at a couple of things. <clears throat> Philemon, and if I can get over there. Down to verse 23, he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, be with your spirit. Amen. So here we find out that Epaphras is a prisoner with Paul, apparently at the writing of these letters, the one to Philemon and the one to Colossae. And we'll see how that works out here in a second. But Paul is, a str is struggling, he's a prisoner. Epaphras apparently had met with him or was in another city with him and maybe in Rome with him at the time of his imprisonment when these letters are written. We also read about Philemon, who apparently was a member there. We also have Athea and Archippus. <clears throat> we can compare the two letters and see who these people are in a little bit. Turn back over to chapter 4 of Colossians. And we're going to just hold your place in Philemon and hold your place in Colossians there and we'll look, see if we can compare a little bit here. Uh, chapter 4, and let's begin in verse uh, 16. He says, Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. And then turn back to Philemon. We'll look at verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy to our brother to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. You see, Paul's referring to them in both of these letters. Okay? So we have Aphia, we have Philemon, we have Archippus. Some would say that Epaphras and Aphia were a married couple, and perhaps Archippus was their son. Don't know that for sure, but that's what scholars might say. Turn back to chapter 4. And let's look at verse 19, I mean, I'm sorry, verse uh, 9, actually verse 7. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, there's the first mention of Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will make known to you all the things which are happening here. Hmm. So he's, concerned, he's talking about Onesimus. Turn back to Philemon. Look down at verse, uh, verse 8. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, aged and, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my change, who was once unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. Verse 12, I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wished to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my change for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing. That your good deed might not be very, by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. Now, 
We're not going to be studying Philemon during this quarter, but Philemon is a letter that Paul wrote to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. Onesimus was Philemon's slave. Okay? He apparently had run away and met up with Paul, perhaps in Rome. And as you can see from the letter, he's saying, I begot him. He was taught the gospel by Paul. Apparently became a Christian and became a fellow worker with Paul. Paul even says there in Philemon, I wish that he could stay here with me, but I cannot do that in good faith. He is a slave. He's sending him back to Colossae, to Philemon. Now, I know that sounds, why would you send a slave back? Well, at that time, he's trying to make things exactly right. Yeah, he's a slave of him, but that's how people lived at that time. There were people that were enslaved, workers for others. That's how they lived. Sure, they, some wanted their freedom and they left, but Paul's saying, look, we have to do things right and proper. It, maybe it's not good that you're a slave, but maybe it is that you need to obey uh, the proper channels for that. Perhaps it was something that he needed to do, and perhaps he realizes now he's a slave to the gospel. It doesn't matter so much how he's living or who he's working with or who's enslaved to on the earth. He's really a slave to God. He's enslaved to the gospel. And so Paul's trying to say, okay, I cannot good faith keep him here with me and work. I'm sending him back to you. Don't think badly of him. Yeah, he, 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 he escaped, he left, but don't think badly of him. He has turned his life over to the Lord, and now he is a slave to Christ. And that's what he's trying to say in this letter. So we read about Onesimus, who's now a worker in the kingdom, along with Philemon. So not only is he a slave to Philemon, he's also a fellow brother in the kingdom. All right. We could have a whole set of lessons on that, right? But that's kind of where that background comes from. And then go back to chapter 4, and uh, let's, uh, well, we already read really about Epaphras. Uh, he, he's likely, he's likely to get, well, actually, let's go back to Philemon and just read uh, second verse there, or second and third verse. To Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, our keep Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Huh. So apparently, they were meeting in a house, and perhaps in Epaphras' house, or to Philemon's house, uh, actually, to, to, I said Epaphras, to Philemon, perhaps they're meeting in his house. So here he's talking about Onesimus, his slave, sending him back to Philemon, who's probably hosting the congregation there in his home. All right, we've read about that, where else? In Acts, right? In the first church, right? What were they doing? Meeting together, breaking bread, meeting together house to house. They didn't have a nice big building like this to go to, right? They had to, in, had to improvise, right? They had to have a place to meet. At the time of the first century church, that's where they met, in people's houses. That's where a lot of the congregations were started, in people's houses. We eventually read where sometimes they were meeting in synagogues and so forth. There were places that they would go to sometimes, but for the most part, they were meeting in people's homes. All right. So he's sending Onesimus back to Philemon. Uh, we read about Philemon the father, Aphia the mother, Archippus the son. And then it's possible, and let's go back to chapter 4 there in Colossians. And uh, let's just read beginning in verse 16. Now when this epistle is read among you, 
See that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And, they, and say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains, grace be with you, amen. Why would Paul be saying that to Archippus, perhaps? Archippus is not with him in prison. He's there in Colossae. But perhaps Archippus is now really the leader or the, you might say, the preacher there at the church that's in Colossae. Perhaps he's the guy that's doing most of the teaching. He's perhaps the guy that's leading most of the evangelism, you might say, of the area. Perhaps he's the guy that has the knowledge, that has the truth, no, nothing in writing yet, right? Perhaps he has that special knowledge or special truth, probably imparted on him through the Spirit, maybe, that he's able to preach and preach the truth as it was in those churches at the time. So it's perhaps Archippus is that guy. We've already talked about Onesimus. He was Philemon's slave, obviously, who had run away, found Paul in Rome, and was converted. And he was being sent back to Philemon. And let's go back to chapter 4 of Colossians. We read that in Philemon, but I don't think we did in Colossians. The way we did, 4, verse 7 through 9, uh, he mentions Onesimus being sent back. So, <clears throat> we have these characters going on. We have two letters here, probably, that were sent to the Colossians at the same time. And we have a name there, Tychicus, who probably carried both letters to the church there. One to Philemon and one to the church, and as he said, he wants the letter read in the other Laodicea and the other churches as well. So it's not just for the Colossians. In this little region, you might say a tri-city area, there was a lot of stuff going on, right? Just what was that going on? What had Paul heard about, perhaps from Epaphras or others, that was happening in this region? Well, perhaps Epaphras had brought news to Paul concerning this church, in fact, we can read in first, uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse uh, 3, some of this stuff. He says, We give thanks to God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the world of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is also in the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So he's heard about their love from Epaphras. He's heard that Epaphras helped bring them the gospel, worked with them, served them. And for the most part, he's given them a favorable, he's given Paul a favorable report of their love, right? But there's some stuff going on. What exactly was that? Well, Colossians 3, I'm not going to go read that, but we'll read about a, an apostasy going on, okay, in the region. An apostasy based on immorality that are implied by comments we'll read about in Colossians 3, and I'm not going to get into that today because we will eventually. There was a danger of accepting what some call the Colossian heresy, okay, and that's in your outline, and there's basically four parts to it. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2, and I'll read a few verses just to introduce what Paul is trying to deal with here. 2 verse 8. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. There's that worldliness thing again. P 
people of the world are trying to tell you what is truth. They don't know the truth. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Wait a minute. Say that again. Verse 9. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. You see, some were saying, it's not just Jesus. He's not enough. There's more. You've got to have special knowledge. That's what the Gnostics tried to say. Knowledge was the thing. Knowing. You don't have to just know Jesus. False philosophy, which denied the all-sufficiency of Christ. Let's continue to read in chapter 2, starting in verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. Wait a minute, what? In worship of angels. Yes, there was apparently an angel cult in that region going on. Intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. There was some angel worship going on. There was some Jewish ceremonial things that they were still holding to, some of the festivals, some of the feasts, some of the food things that they weren't supposed to eat. They're still trying to enforce that on them. And he's trying to say, no, this is not true anymore. This is a shadow of what was to come. The Sabbath, the keeping of the Sabbath, the keeping of the food uh, laws, the, the, the festivals, the feasts that were going on that the Jews tip. There's some Jews that are trying to keep these things going. And he's saying, beware of this. And in those last verses, he says, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, of course, Lord Jesus, the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase. That's from God. We don't need all these food laws. We don't need all this stuff. Our growth comes from God. Interesting comments. And then there's the uh, very strange, I think, uh, thing that was going on called, you would, in, in outline it's called asceticism. Let's read beginning in verse 20. Therefore, if you die with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. You had people saying, I have to uh, punish the flesh. The flesh has to be punished. We can't touch things. We can't eat things. I have to be pure through neglect, through denying myself. And, and that sounds good on the surface, doesn't it? That sounds like something you might read about in the gospel. You know, we are denying ourselves. But Paul's saying, no, these things are useless to us. It's the spiritual side of things that matter, not, not the neglect of, of the body, not, not the punishment of, of the of the body, of the flesh, that's going away. That's useless to us. We're to worry about the spiritual things, not these things. So 
These are some components of this heresy that's creeping in to the congregation there in Colossae, and you might say into that tri-city, that region, Laodicea and Hierapolis as well. Paul is wanting these things read that they may not be part of this. So, what is the purpose? What's the reason for having this letter? Well, obviously, we have brethren at Colossae who are backsliding, right? Who are relapsing, who are going back to the former things they were part of. Do we do that today? Does that happen today? Oh, yeah. Still going on. Paul's warning against that. He's warning against what's called the, quote, solution being used or being uh, pushed onto the, uh, to the Christians there by those who deny Jesus as being all-sufficient. They're saying Jesus isn't, gonna, isn't all of it. He, he's not the end-all. He's not the be-all. He's not the alpha and the omega. There's more going on you've got to be part of. You've got to be all-knowing. You've got to be counting on yourself again. You've got to deny your flesh. You've got to do these other things. Perhaps even some were involved in this cult that was worshiping angels that was going on there. So he's trying to direct their attention toward Jesus, toward the all-sufficient sacrifice, the all-sufficient Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice that he gave once and for all. Let's turn back over to chapter 1 there and read a few more verses. Uh, let's see, let's begin with verse, let's see, 13. <clears throat> he says, He's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He's having to give them the first principles again, right? Do you think they heard that before? Well, yeah, surely they did if they obeyed the gospel. They had to have heard that statement, that very verse. Paul's having to re-say it, rephrase it, give it to them again. They're having to hear it again. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, were their thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things and in him all things consist. He's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Paul's having to tell them again, look, Jesus is all you need. He is the creator. Well, we just studied that in the Gospel of John. He is the preeminent one. He's the head. You're the body. You don't need anything else. Nothing else at all. All these things in the Jewish traditions and the Jewish legal uh, laws that they had uh, about the Sabbath, about the feast, about the foods, that's all just a shadow of what was to come. It's not needed anymore. We now have the law of love. We now have the complete sacrifice, Jesus, who gave it all for us once and for all. So you might say, what's the theme? Well, we just read it. The preeminence of the all-sufficient Savior, right? The all-sufficient Christ. He's all we need. We see this in a few other letters, don't we? Hebrews, that's, a, that's all about, that's what we read about all over Hebrews, right? When they were still trying to talk about having the, the sacrifices, the, the Levitical practices with the priests, and, and the Hebrew writers having to tell them, you don't need a high priest anymore. 
Jesus is your high priest. He's all you need. We see that there. We see that in many other cases in his letters, right? That these folks still were going back to their old beliefs, old religions, trying to hold on to them, trying to incorporate them into Christianity. And Paul's saying, no, you don't need that anymore. And believe me, Paul knew, right? He was a Jew among all Jews. He states that. He knew the laws. He knew the feasts. He knew the festivals. He knew the Levitical practices better than most. But he's saying, you don't need that anymore. All we need is Christ. In your outline, you have an outline of the epistle. I'll just go through it quickly. You have basically the doctrine, which is the preeminent Christ in the first chapter. He's preeminent in the gospel message. He's preeminent, he's preeminent in redemption. He's all you need. He's preeminent in creation. He's God. He's preeminent in the church. He's the head of the church. He's preeminent even in Paul's own ministry, as he states. And we'll see that eventually. He's also saying there's a great danger. Beware of it. Beware of the possibility of philosophies creeping in that are not godly, worldly things, worldly ideas that come from paganism that are trying to creep in to the church. Beware of the Judaistic uh, ceremonialism, the, the practices of the law, the old ways, the Old Testament ways, not needed anymore. Beware of man-made things, angel worship, the cult of angel worship. We have these things today, right? All these things, maybe not as prevalent as it was then like the Jewish practices. We don't see that necessarily as a problem in the church. At least I haven't, but you might see it in some places. But we have some other things that can creep in, right? Yeah, lots of things that we're not careful and we have to watch out for. Uh, and then finally, the deity of Christ is demonstrated. In his, we'll see that in chapter 3. I didn't, didn't read anything from chapter 3, but his personal purity uh, and brother relations, the way we relate to each other. The deity of Christ in our homes. Is Christ the king in your home? What about in your daily work or in the sharing of the gospel and serving one another? All these things he's dealing with with the Colossians. Just like we have to deal with today. Things that we deal with right now. So, hopefully from this study, you'll be able to glean some things. It's a short gospel. You might say, why do we need to spend so many weeks on it? Well, there are some very valid things to look at. Some things that relate to how we live today. The value of this letter is going to increase our understanding, hopefully, and help us to appreciate Jesus Christ even more. And truly know that He is the only way. John 14, 6. I'm the way and the truth and life. The only way to the Father is through me. And I know you've heard someone say, I'm going to heaven. And you say, well, how do you know? Because I'm a good guy. Don't get it. It's not enough. The only way to heaven, John 14, 6, is through Jesus Christ. That's the only way. So, some of you here today, you might have some struggles, might be needing to change some things. Hopefully this study will help you out with that and help you understand that you don't need anything else but Jesus Christ in this world. Doesn't mean you're going to have a good life or be wealthy. I mean, I don't say good life. You'll have an abundant life. We do have that promise. But doesn't mean you're going to be wealthy. Doesn't mean you're always going to be healthy. Not going to, doesn't mean you're going to get everything your heart ever desired. But you get to live with God. And you get that hope of eternity with Him.
that reward to come that so many have gone on to receive. All right, I'm starting to preach. I've got to stop. Time is up.